The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Now, okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, last time I was here, I was um, being ordained by Gil with two other people, and so I see some familiar faces from the ordination. It's nice to see you all again. Um, I think the moving truck has arrived or something. I'm sitting in a chair because um, my daughter-in-law's father recently passed away and I, this is uh, right before I flew out here and I was helping out at the services their family was uh, sitting Shiva and I picked up my year-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter and carried her around for four hours while serving people with my left hand. (laughs) And what I realized is that um, my body just can't do that sort of thing anymore. makes you wonder how you did it when you were raising your own. For those of you who have children, I know you know what I'm talking about. Um, So I've been fortunate to be staying with um, Bruce and Inez, who many of you know are retired chiropractors, And um, so they've been uh, t- telling me how to carry my pack and how to put ice on my back. So anyway, that's, I appreciate having a chair. I've been uh, talking with different people. Um, Steve and uh, Cheryl Gassner were very lovely and took me out to dinner last night and uh, asked me what I was going to talk about today as have various other people. And um, in the, if you are familiar with the Ajahn Chah school of monks and nuns, they don't uh, make notes, they don't read talks. Um, it's really about being in the, in the moment, seeing what arises, and having faith that indeed something will arise. And if not, your audience will be very happily... Um, involved in, you know, practicing. And so um, generally, though, as a university professor, I'm not at a loss for words. (laughs) So um, I just hope that my words will be of some use. Um, The topic that I I actually have kind of loosely want to address and see how it comes out. Can you hear me back there? Are you okay? It's about um, how our life uh, becomes practice um, as we move along the path. And that uh, sometimes I feel like in, in um, the Western, in our tradition in the West, we really focus on sitting practice, on bringing mindful awareness into what we're doing. Both of these things are, of course, very important. And um, having a a daily sitting practice, um, bringing our mindful awareness into what we're doing um, on a moment-to-moment or day-to-day basis is uh, very, very important and uh, very skillful things to develop, of course. But... Perhaps equally is important, and maybe one could, from different perspectives, say perhaps even more important is the attention we give to our behavior, to our interactions, to our uh, thinking processes, to everything else that's going on all the time. One of the things that's emphasized in uh, the Pali Canon and uh, certainly by the monastic tradition is that uh, what we need to do in order to create the conditions for fruitful meditation practice is to create a, a field around us or behavior, activities, attitudes um, that incline the mind toward awakening 
that gladden the heart, that energize um, our enthusiasm, that allow us to be inspired in order to practice over the long haul. We've all been, I'm sure you uh, agree with me, most people would agree with me, or at least this has been my experience, maybe nobody agrees with me, is that periodically I'm very inspired. You know, I can sit until the cows come home, as they say, and I'm very enthusiastic about my Dharma practice and um, following the Noble Eightfold Path and... And then, you know, the enthusiasm, the inspiration fades. And I'm easily distracted. Other things arise in my awareness that take me away from that. And, you know, then, it's be- then it becomes an effort. And that's where our energy, our, um, our momentum, the momentum that we create in our practice becomes what we fall back on or what we can rely on. And in my um, observation over the years, what has really, what helps me and keeps me going in the practice, uh, both in the time of great energy and in the time of great um, boredom or monotony or um, when things are just um, much too distracting in the world, is my uh, attention to the Eightfold the Noble Eightfold Path. I think um, one of the things that's come up for me as I reflect on this is the issue of, or the, the um, one of the folds of the path, um, which is right view, samaditi, right view. And what, what, how right view functions for me in helping me stay Um, focused, helping me stay um, alert and aware of of my um, intention to awaken, my intention to, um, my desire, help me bring fruition, to fruition, my intention and desire to be on the path um, 24-7. And right view, of course, is dependent on practice in many ways. It arises out of practice, but it also, of course, fuels practice. And some of the qualities of right view are what I wanted to kind of loosely structure this talk around and, uh, and think about with you the ways in which we can use right view to constantly um, generate the kind of energy that we need uh, on a continual basis in our pursuit of awakening to the unconditioned. One of the aspects of right view is, of course, the realization that everything arises out of causes and conditions. Everything arises out of causes and conditions. And in Sakaya Diti, our personality view, that's, you know, that's, we don't see it that way at all. Um, generally, the view of our personality is that you know, I make things happen. Um, well, I make the good things happen. <laughs> and other people, well, you know, if they don't listen to me... Um, or something, you know, that's, I'm being facetious, but of course that's the way it is uh, a lot of the time in general. Everything arises out of causes and conditions. And one of our goals of practice uh, in meditation is to slow down, slow down the mind, slow down the perceptions enough that we can see that, we can witness the arising of out of conditions, how things arise out of conditions. And on one level, it's very simple. It's, you know, seeing how thoughts arise out of conditions. You know, I was really tired and cranky 
Last night I've had this sciatica, I've been driving a lot, I was feeling achy, and you know, I noticed that my voice started getting to a bit of a higher pitch. In fact, some might call it whining. And, um, and, and this, is a, this, is nor- this is human, this is a normal thing, um, that our moods, our thoughts, our responses arise out of conditions. And some of the conditions are obvious, um, such as exhaustion, such as hunger. Some of the conditions, uh, uh, the causes and conditions are things, of course, that we don't see. Um, the things that come together, um, the many different causal factors that come together that create conditions. Um, and in fact, a lot of teachers would say that you know, 99% of our experience is, is out of our control, and that's being generous, um, maybe, maybe more than that. And that's not to say we don't have choices or make decisions, but that there's so many different conditions, so many different causes that come together um, that create these conditions. And one of the skillful things I, f- I think we can do, and that I uh, attempt to do, is to find the conditions that most support my practice. What are the conditions that most support the mind state that I need to cultivate, the heart state that needs to be there to support my practice. And I, my goal is to put myself as often as possible in those conditions, to create those conditions and place myself there. And of course the Buddha famously says that um, good friends, noble friends, uh, friends who are on the path, the Sangha, um, your community here, that's a place that can inspire one, that can create the conditions for continued practice. Um, there are many others. Uh, for me, I've recently had a uh, kind of booster rocket strapped on um, my inspiration. I started volunteering um, at the hospice care center. We have a 30-bed hospice care center in uh, Denver, where I live. And uh, so every Wednesday I spend my day with the people, the, the patients, the healthcare professionals that are there. And I, I, keep, I always apologize when I say this because it seems so tried and cliched, but it is a phenomenal, phenomenal gift to be able to do that. And I'm sure some of you are nodding your head, so I know that you know of that which I speak. It's an incredibly intimate uh, view, an intimate time in uh, in our lives, this separation between life and death. And being able to be there with people just as I am, just as they are, not trying to make anything different, is uh, an incredible um, reminder, a very precious reminder. And you know, I think it's it said that the Buddha talked about one of the major uh, things to practice, one of the major reminders was to reflect on one's mortality, to reflect on death. And I know it's, it's probably not the feel-good topic of the day, uh, but I just add that in our view of right view, um, because it is part of, it is right view. Um, The other thing that um, inspires me are people who practice and people who are very committed to their practice and um, stick with it no matter what and talk about their practice and that I see create conditions for their practice, 
have a, a cushion set up so that they can sit daily or a chair, make it a priority to um, be involved in their um, study of sutta or um, their interactions with other people in the sangha. I also find it very um, helpful to be around people who don't practice. Um, To be around people who aren't... um, Their lives are very, you know, dear, wonderful, loving, kind. I mean, you know, people who practice don't necessarily um, own the the market. Is that the word? Is that the expression? Corner the market? So it's some sort of economic expression. Um, And um, and kindness. I mean, we're we're hoping to generate, we're hoping to uh, create the field of kindness within ourselves. But there are a lot of people, as you know and as I know, who, who aren't involved in Buddhism, who aren't involved in meditation, who are very kind, very loving, very caring people, and can be of great influence, um, great modeling for us. And there can be people that we really don't like very much at all, who are also who are the opposite, um, who are very uh, important influences to us. At least that's what I find. Because... In spite of the fact that I've been uh, attempting to cultivate the right attitudes and loving kindness and equanimity for many decades, um, you know, I can certainly get self-righteous and judgmental in a nanosecond. And when it arises, it's very instructive. It's a very important um, lesson for me. It's like, whoa, where did that come from? I remember when I uh, first began setting retreats, I had a, a neighbor who talked incessantly. He was one of those people who you just couldn't, you know, couldn't get a word in edgewise. And it was about, you know, I mean, generally it was about everything that was going wrong and, you know, this, the kids these days and their loud cars and, you know, whatever it was. It was going on and on and on. And I thought, oh, God, you know, I, was just, I would just get exasperated and then I'd go back and I'd try to be patient and I'd get exasperated and I'd go back and I'd try to be patient and I'd get exasperated. And then I went in and I was sitting retreat and those of you who've sat retreat know that um, that neighbor lives in your head, right? And so it was really fun for me to listen to this, like, yada, 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 yada. I mean, you know, this... And I realized, wow, you know, <laughs> if I can put up with that in my own head for 10 days, certainly, you know, I can listen to my neighbor who's just going to go on and on and on. It really gave me a, a completely different view on, um, on that propensity for uh, listening to ourselves and listening to other people. One of the, the things that I find very inspiring, too, are people who are uh, wanting to create a meditation practice and haven't yet gotten one established and who really um, sincerely want to practice and need some suggestions. Isn't it interesting, you know, they say that to teach is to learn, right? So that when we go to help people um, and we, can, we hear ourselves saying the things that we need to hear, you know, set aside a certain time every day, um, make sure that you sit no matter what, um, meditate before something takes you into the next phase. So that kind of, um, I guess what they call beginner's mind, is very, very uh, useful and inspiring to me, and helps me create that view, that, that right view, that every moment is a new moment, as far as the rising of, causing and con- uh, rises of causes and conditions. Causes and conditions are so important also because of the habits that come out of them. And in some ways, uh, one of the Insights I had uh, on a retreat that uh, kind of changed my perspective on uh, who I am was, it, you know, I'd been sitting for, I think it was a month long or so, I was sitting for a couple of weeks, and all of a sudden I realized, wow, I'm just a big habit. <laughs> this, 
this, this thing, this being that I take so seriously, you know, me, my personality, my wants, my desires, my sufferings, th- this is all habitual. These, these are just habits that come together. And I identify it. I mean, that's not, to, that's not to demean it. That's not to put it down. But, you know, this personality is a habit. And we know that's to be true because we've seen people who've gone through big changes. You know, people all have, oh, a medical issue or a car accident or something, and suddenly their personality has changed. Do you see that? And, you know, you've realized, oh, these habits have changed. These conditions have changed. So it's re- really important in our, uh, to keep in mind in our right view that so much of what we do is habitual. And therefore, I mean, that's the key, that's a really key uh, uh, finding for us, we can create new habits. And we can incline the mind to um, uh, the awareness that our practice is something that needs to go on all the time. We can incline the mind to noticing how... um, you know, how we, we create our own suffering. This morning, um, Bruce uh, was, I'm pointing over there because he's sitting over there. Bruce was uh, making the comment that, and I thought it was a, a Dharma teaching in and of itself. Um, here I am with this very bad, uh, painful sciatica. I don't know if anybody's ever had it. Uh, who knew? I had no idea it was so painful. Um, and he said he was watching as I was putting the coffee cup down on the table that I overreached, I overextended myself to push it onto the table. And I thought, that's just perfect. You know, it's just, it's like the perfect physical manifestation of, you know, overreaching. We, we reach to grab and we reach to push away. And, you know, that's, I'm using this metaphorically, of course. And that overreaching is part of what creates the suffering, right? To pushing away what is going really happening in our lives. You know, that the the way things are and the and the grabbing hold of the way things are um, and wanting to keep them that way. So these are the kind of things that um, these are the kind of habits that would be uh, that are that are very useful for me to pay attention to, how I push away, how I hold on, and um, and I think my body was telling me that in its, in its kind of demonstration um, of the coffee cup. One of the things I heard recently, may, it might have been a Dharma talk here by Tan Jeff. Um, I think it was Tan Jeff. I listen to so many Dharma talks from, on, on my uh, MP3 as I'm commuting because I teach in Boulder. I can never keep track, and they just play, you know, so I don't know who's, who, they don't switch. I, all I know is that if it starts out, namo tasa, that it's a monastic, you know, otherwise. Um, but uh, one of the things they were pointing out um, was that samsara is a verb. Now, samsara, if you are uh, not used to this uh, language, samsara is the Pali word for what we call the wandering on, the, this realm of existence where we're just, um, according to uh, Buddhist philosophy or uh, theology, this realm, we're just kind of wandering on. And it's this becoming, this constant becoming, wanting to be something, wanting to be something that creates our suffering, as well as the wanting not to be. So the the Buddha you know, said that it was just as bad to want to... St- quit existence as it was to create existence that um, you know really the, you know of course the place of equanimity is accepting things the way things are just the way things are so people often use the term samsara as a noun as it's kind of like purgatory mm-hmm. you know people think of samsara as purgatory you know here we are we're stuck in samsara we're stuck in in uh, purgatory and whoever this person was, I think it was Tan Jeff, was talking about samsara as it's a verb. It's what we do. We're, we're, we're samsaring if we're not being mindful. We're creating. We're, 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 we create our wandering on, you know. And how do we do that? We do it out of wrong view. We do it out of thinking we're going to be happier if things are just a bit different than they are. Um, if... You know, if so-and-so didn't act like this, or if 
you know, BP hadn't done that stupid oil drilling, um, which I take personally, just to let you know. I'm very unhappy about that oil drilling, and I think they did that. I mean, it feels personal. Um, but that I would be I would be happier if these things didn't didn't happen, or uh, contrarily, if um, you know all things were equal and there were no poor people, and we all had as much as we needed, and everybody was nice and generous and helpful, and there was plenty of chocolate, then I would be really happy. You know, that's the other uh, piece of it, and of course, you know. That's the samsaring, that's the, that's the wandering on, that's the creating, the creating. And so I'm going to be out there creating conditions to make that happen. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's, you know, part of what we do on this in our lives. We, we have families, we create conditions for employment, or, you know, we, we do things. Um, but there's a big difference between doing it out of delusion wandering around thinking that these things are going to make us happy and this person makes us unhappy and that's why we never did this and why this was going to be wrong, etc., etc. Then to see it, oh, okay, these are arising out of conditions. This is my part in the condition. If I want things to be better, if I want people to be nicer to me, maybe I should, you know, it's like what your mother used to say, if you want people to be nice to you, you have to be nice to them, Right? Unfortunately, it's not that simple, but it's, uh, it's a good teaching, nonetheless, to be nice to people. I was thinking a lot about this um, samsara as being a verb. I, I really like that. Um, in terms of the Noble Eightfold Path, because we often think of the Noble Eightfold Path as a noun, Right? Right livelihood, right view. These are these are um, categories, and you know, for many of us, we have we've internalized categories, tables, charts. Right? These are this is a graph, so you just kind of do it. Do I have, today? Do I have right view? Check. Right employment? Check. Right livelihood. Um, right energy? Check. You know, we go through them. And it's really, for me, um, I find incredibly useful to check on it moment to moment. One of my, uh, this is a, a tangent, but it's related to this. One of my favorite practices, and it's something that I'm so grateful for. Um, I, I don't remember who. I mean, you read about it, you're taught it over and over, but I started actually practicing it um, some years ago, and it's really so useful, which is, you know, the only way, the way that we know the world is through the six senses, the five senses that we know about. And, the, and then in Buddhism, they, cre- they refer to thinking and emotions as a sense. And um, so as we're sitting here, everything we know about the world comes into us through these senses, whether you like what I'm saying or don't like what I'm saying, um, or planning your grocery list while you're sitting here, or deep in samadhi, these are all things that are generating, uh, generated inside of us because of the, um, the things that are coming in and how we respond to them. So as I'm sitting here, for example, you know what I feel is my body on the cushion, the warmth of my body sitting here, the sound, and at this point, really, I can only hear my own voice. Um, but, of course, if I really was quiet and paid attention, the sound of silence, or the not a sound, the smell, the taste, what I see, and then the thoughts and the emotions that arise simultaneously inside of me. That's all that's going on. That's it, folks. 24-7, that's what's happening. It's what we do with it right, that creates our, our world. In fact, when um, there's that great story of Bahia, um, or I think some people pronounce it differently, Bahia, 
Anyway, um, in the suttas, and he, he's, this guy runs to the Buddha, and I don't remember the whole story, but he, the Buddha, of course, is on his way to alms round or something, and Bahia says, I have to have the teachings right now. I have to have them. He finds out, I think he was a renunciate in some other tradition, and he finds out his tradition was not working, and, this Buddha, and the Buddha could actually teach him. He says, you, you have to teach me right now. And the Buddha said, you know, I'm actually on alms round. And he said, no, right now. And, of course, he asked the three magical times. And the Buddha says, and I'm paraphrasing, so um, all translators, please forgive me in advance, that he says, basically, when you, what you see is what you see. What you hear is what you hear. You know, what you smell is what you smell. The, that's all there is. You know, and then in Bahia, I think he gets gored by a bull or something within, you know, a few minutes and dies. And, but he's enlightened prior to that because he, he got it. And um, so it's, it, it's true. That's what's going on. What's going on right now? And so it's how we respond. It's how we react to those things that... Uh, create our experience of of them, you know. And we and we all know that different people have different experiences of them, of anything. Um, you know, the, a perfect example. Uh, and I, again, using myself as the example, I have an aversion to eggs. I'm egg phobic. I have no idea why. Um, but, you know, some people really love eggs. And so for them, scrambling an egg is, or frying an egg or something is like the best thing in the whole world. And, yeah, I have to leave the room. Um, because eggs, I just don't even like the smell of them. My poor children grew up eating tofu. And they're completely deprived. Now, they, now they're egg fanatics. Um, but, you know, this one thing that has, that's so differently responded um, to... Uh, in relation to this, one of the great things I heard recently on some Dharma talk was that somebody, the, it was a question, and somebody said, you know, the world is so screwed up. I mean, there's, you know, people dying here, you know, the oil spill, this war, the this, that, the other, the other. It's terrible, terrible, terrible. And the person answered, said, but, you know, you can only respond... So, let me just rephrase that. The way to respond is, to, the way to keep it in mind is you respond when and how you can. When and how you can. And I thought that was really very useful. Um, not so much because people, I think, some people do continue to feel so much angst and heart um, hurting about these things, but a lot of us just tune them out. You know, because it's just too overwhelming. It's just too overwhelming. How can we possibly contain in our little psyches the amount of suffering that's going on? Many of us can't contain the amount of suffering that's going on in our own lives, much less in the world. So to think of it, again, in this, uh, to me, this is really part of right view. It's really part of this, the verbal action of right view. Um, seeing the eightfold path as verbs, these things that we're doing, that we do daily, that we want to keep in mind, that we're, uh, th- this is the practice, the practice of, of mindfulness. We, we do see that verbally, don't we, as a verb. I, I'm, you know, I'm a, a nerdy professor, so I think in these grammar terms. I apologize if you all have been um, traumatized by your early grammar teachers. Some people were, apparently. Um, But don't you see your mindfulness practice as an activity? It's something that you do, right? It doesn't just happen to you. You do it. Am I right? And and it's the entire Eightfold Path is that way. It's something that we do. Right speech. Um, we certainly know when we're doing wrong speech, don't we? Even though we may tweak it. Oh, that wasn't really gossiping because that could have been useful information 
for somebody somewhere at some time, no doubt. So, and again, you know, we could take these things and beat ourselves up and feel bad about it, and that's certainly not right view, right? These are things to to learn from, to um, to to see again, to see them verbally. These are the way that. Um, This is the way we keep ourselves on the path. Keep ourselves moving towards awakening. And I I think that's what I want to end on, is just talking for just a moment more about what are we doing on this path? I think it's very important to keep the goal in mind. The, The heart's full release the unconditioned awakening to Nibbana, awakening to the unborn, awakening to the deathless. It's a wonderful quote that Gil uses a lot. Um, from the suttas, which is the, get, the date, gates to the deathless stand open. The gates to the deathless stand open. You don't have to do anything special. They stand open. You do have to practice. So, um, I thought, I, I translate the Terigata, which is the poems of the early nuns. And... Um, there was a, one of the early nuns, these are the nuns from, uh, historical, from the historical time of the Buddha, and they had an oral tradition of gathas or poems, and which were written down in the second century and then brought back to the West, not until the um, early 20th century. And so they've been translated. And this one, this is not my translation. Um, it's just off the... Uh, access to insight. But Sujata, one of the early nuns, talks about her life, her early life. And people like to say that she was a um, concubine or a, a, a prostitute or something. That's really not in the teachings. It's kind of like it, it, those of you who've studied uh, the New Testament, they talk about um, Mary Magdalene that way. It's never in the Bible, but somehow or another people like to think that. And so, but she was definitely from what we would consider the upper middle class. So it says, with subtle veils adorned, this is a very Victorian translation, uh, garlands and sandalwood bedecked. Now, is that, a, is that a word you use often, bedecked? I'm going to bedeck myself. Anyway, covered all over with ornaments, surrounded by my servants, taking uh, food and drink and, and edibles of many kinds, uh, we set off from my house and went into a picnic grove. And we, we enjoyed um, our time there. We played around. And we turned around to go home. And we saw that there was a monastery at Sakata. And we saw, seeing there, the uh, light of the world, which I think is a really beautiful um, name for the Buddha. And she says, I I drew next to him and bowed down. And out of compassion, right then and there, he taught me the Dhamma. And of course, in these stories, you hear the Dhamma once from the Buddha and you're fully enlightened. Um, Hearing the words of the great sage, I penetrated the truth. I touched the realm of the deathless. I attained the three true knowledges and the Buddha's full teachings. So I, I just want to remind us all that what we're doing here is, yes, we're, we're living a better life, we're becoming uh, more virtuous and open-hearted and kind, patient, generous beings. This is all, these are all very important things that we're doing. But we're doing it on behalf of our efforts, the plea of the Buddha, the Buddha's teachings, which were to reach Nibbana, 
to experience the unconditioned, that which does not arise out of causes and conditions, that which is not born and which does not die, That's the end of suffering. So, as I understand it, this is followed by discussion or questions or something. Is that correct? Okay. Would you like? Does anybody have any discussion or question or? Do you take this time to excuse anyone who wants to leave? Um, but uh, we would normally go into our potluck now, but perhaps people would like to have questions and answers for just a few minutes. Okay. Does anybody have any questions or answers for just a few minutes, or shall we? Uh, yes, thank you. I find myself often caught at this sort of stumbling point between an intellectual understanding and an experiential lacking. And I never quite know what to do with that. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is, well, practice more, practice more, practice more, but sometimes that's not very helpful. (laughs) And it especially comes up with the concept of emptiness because now I'm finding that, you know, why would I go watch a play? Why would I go to the museum? It's all empty. And I don't particularly like that attitude and I but I get stuck a little bit around the Buddhist teachings on you know emptiness and I so I don't does this familiar to you or well I mean I I guess the I would ask you a question why come to a a Dhamma talk if it's all empty you know what I mean I mean I, 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 I understand what you're saying and the um you know the insight into the fact that um you know, everything, all phenomena arises and passes away, and uh, all phenomena in that sense is empty because it's arising and passing away. It's a profound insight. Nonetheless, we live in a world of forms. And so going to a play or coming to a Dhamma talk or, you know, playing with your grandchild or dog, or whatever, these are, this is where we live. This is what, we, what we're doing. Um, if it wasn't for the fact that we were in this realm, the, the eightfold noble path, and you know, none of this would be, uh, imp- it wouldn't be, we wouldn't be doing it. So I, I think I understand what you're saying, and um, and yes, experience is, is you know experiencing um, emptiness is can be a very illuminating experience, and nonetheless, after the experience comes the laundry. I should write a book. <laughs> I don't want to imply I've experienced loneliness, I mean, uh, emptiness. <laughs> but I get, the, I get the intellectual concept. And so I, I don't know. To me, it's a very stuck point, And just don't know what to do with it. I, I get, I'm not quite sure what the stuck point was. I didn't get that. Um, it has to do with what feels like an intellectual understanding of a Buddhist concept but no experiential foundation for it. Mm-hmm. And I find that a confusing point because I, I seem to understand it. And so I start to apply, well, I'm probably not going to get any true enlightenment from going to the museum to look at paintings. One never knows. One never knows, it's true. <laughs> but it feels like, well, I don't know, obviously I'm confused about this. and it's, I just, well, I, But no one ever seems to talk much about how do you learn to balance this? I understand it, but I've never experienced it. What do you do around well, that? You, I think it, there's, there's, there's various different positions. Guess what? People don't agree even about this. But, um, um, but I, I understand and I'm sympathetic to that. And I, I, what I would suggest is maybe a solution for you is there's nothing wrong with having an intellectual understanding with something you haven't experienced. I mean, you know, I have an intellectual understanding of I don't know, you know, going to the moon. I mean, but I'm not going to go there. As far as awakening um, to different, you know, having different experiences towards awakening, um, I I can have intellectual understandings that as I'm practicing help me to 
help me in, in my uh, experience of them. I mean, some teachers teach that it's very important to, have, to do the sutta study, to have the intellectual understanding, so that when you are practicing, um, you understand what's happening to you, or what you're experiencing, or however, whatever language you want to use about it. It's, not, it's nothing to feel bad about. I mean, it's just, that's just, this is the gradual path, right? So that's just the way it works. And we have our mind, um, our minds are more easily trained than our hearts, one could say. Thanks. There's a hand over here. I wonder what is the, we, we talk about all the bad things going on in the world, and I have a tendency to think about all the lovely things going on. I find myself delightfully overwhelmed by the beauty of life many times. And I wonder what is the role or the view of, of this beauty, the miraculousness of life, in the Buddhist concept? Well, first of all, I think whatever you have, you should bottle it and sell it because that's a wonderful thing. Uh, Ajahn Amaro, those of you who know him, often says that people get frustrated with him because he's an incurable optimist. Uh, So it's a a nice thing. The Buddha had no problem with people being happy, content, uh, you know, beautiful. I mean, the the teaching to incline the mind toward um, happiness, the, the the beauty that arises in uh, um, so many different things. There's nothing wrong with... I mean, this this is a very beautiful... This can be a very beautiful realm of existence. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And so many wonderful things. It's... Of course, we know it's, it's going to arise and pass away. So if your happiness is dependent on the beauty, I mean, then, then there could be a problem. You know, if you... If you if you get very sad when the f- blossoms fall off the tree, then uh, that would be a problem. Otherwise, it's really, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with, with having that, the attitude of, of being able to perceive the beauty in things. I think it's a very, it's a fortunate, um, a fortunate, you know, some people who believe in these things would say, it, you know, it's the result of some karma from some other life. I don't know. I think it's, uh, there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with it. And, um, but it is, it is important to keep in mind that um, suffering happens. Suffering happens to everybody. And so, uh, being happy and appreciating the beauty of the world is perfectly fine as long as when something crushing happens in your life, you have the ability to switch on right view about that and not feel devastated that at that moment the beauty has gone. So it sounds like um, it's perfectly okay, but does the beauty, does the acknowledgement of the beauty of this life serve any purpose? I mean, in Christianity, it's the recognition of the miracles of God. In Buddhism, and I've got one foot in each world, you know, like maybe mm-hmm. a few people here, so in Buddhism, is there a purpose? I mean, is it just there? Oh, yes, it's a little entertainment. It's like a cocktail. Um, or is it some purpose? Suffering seems to have all this purpose. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that... You know, I, I'm, I'm thinking about how to answer that or how to address it, how to think about it. Um, First of all, people think that the Buddha said, teaches, the Buddhism is all about that there is only suffering in the world, right? That's not the teaching. The teaching is that, you know, suffering arises. Right? The teaching of, uh, of awakening and enlightenment is, is based on happiness. Right? So that's, you know, we're supposed to be getting happier, not more dour. You know, I am a Buddha. You know, that, so that's not our goal. Um, the... Um, I think that, you know, I'm going to answer it the way I understand it. And there are probably perhaps people here who have different understandings, more thorough understandings, I don't know. So the way that I would answer that question is that that they say that, uh, again, from this kind of theological view, that being born 
in this realm of existence is the perfect realm in which to be introduced to the Dharma because it has so much beauty and love and goodness and as well as so much suffering and loss and the things that we don't like. That if you're born in a realm where there's too much suffering, not enough happiness, you don't have the you know, the gladness of mind, the happiness to pursue awakening. You have to have a certain amount. Ajahn Sashiro says, um, I did a course with him once, and he said that, you know, you ha- in order to have a meditation practice, you need to have, uh, before you can have a good meditation practice, you need to have a group of really good friends, loving friends. You know, that's, that's a foundation for practice. So, so that, I, I'm not answering that question exactly, but I, I hope that it's making some sense. So that neither one are, beho- neither one are higher than the other. In fact, you know, they, there are conditions that arise and pass away, and again, it's what we do with them. Thank you. Go. There's one more question back here, and then we'll break. Is that good? I think I can I'm just interested to know whether you, what, what is your view on reincarnation? Do you see it as a real physical thing or a metaphorical? I have no idea. <laughs> none, none whatsoever. I mean, you know, I, I, I would just give you the standard answers, which are that. Um, if indeed there's such a thing as rebirth, what would get reborn is your momentum, right? I mean, that's what gets, that's what would be reborn. I have no memory. My grandson told me that he remembered uh, his past life when he was riding a horse. Um, I, you know, I think he'd just seen it on, you know, some DVD. But uh, anyway, I don't, I don't have, I don't hold any informed position. Nobody has lifted the curtain to reveal anything to me on that level. Sorry. Anybody else know anything about reincarnation? No. Just okay. The movie, well, should, I'm there's sorry. a movie I saw last night. I can't remember. The Something Child, but it was about um, reincarnation of a famous Dharma who was finally um, blessed by the by the Dalai Lama, and it certainly seemed. Uh, I mean, it was a, it was a documentary. I don't know whether anybody else has seen it. But it was a uh, it was a very convincing uh, mm-hmm. movie, mm-hmm. Or the unmistakable child. Yeah, I mean, I I know that in Tibetan practice it's particularly important because of the whole issue of lineage. So, um, you know, I I I don't uh, I think that sounds really great. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be with you, and uh, as I understand there is now food